Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. First, real quick, in case anybody's wondering, uh, this shirt was given to me by one of our church members, Doris. Uh, she's probably watching online today. Uh, she's from Kenya. And so uh, this is one of my favorite shirts, one of the most comfortable shirts. And I've been told it helps keep some people awake while I preach, so <laughs> that's great, too. Okay, so we just read this together, and honestly, it's pretty, I think it's pretty cool to worship together, to pray together, but also to read God's Word together. And so it was, it was just great to, to look out and see you all doing that. So Peter opens up this letter, uh, knowing that it's going to be distributed not just to one church, but to a number of churches. And so the opening statement that he makes is intentionally broad, but it's also meant specifically to connect the members of the church who would read it to the history of God's people. And so when Peter uses the language he uses, it's to to help them identify with the story of God. And that's true for us today as well. And he starts out saying, to God's elect, exiles, Now, for the Jewish people, this would immediately conjure up the stories of Egypt and of the people wandering in the desert being exiled for God. It would also conjure up the reality that the current people were living under occupation because the story of the people of Israel had been being taken out of their homeland, being overrun and ruled by different powers, in particular one of the more famous ones being Babylon. And so when when Peter opens up this text, he is trying to connect the people, the followers of Jesus, to this broader story of God. And so the tone is being set for this letter right from the beginning, because is being exiled a good thing? No, it's not. It's not pleasant. But Peter doesn't let that reality, as much as he calls it out, define who they are. And so he continues to say, despite being exiled, you have been chosen. This is a powerful statement. I mean, whenever we have been chosen, we feel worth and value, whether it's on the playground when you were a kid and you got chosen to be on a team, or or maybe it was you, the story of your life is being adopted. That's a part of our family. Being chosen is significant. And so, hey, you've been exiled, but despite what you're in, God has chosen you. And then he continues by using this word, and this connects even with Pentecost Sunday. He's saying, not only have you been chosen, but God is continuing to work through you, this sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying or sanctification is this process of becoming more who God intends us to be, more like Jesus, more pure and more holy, more who we were meant to be from the beginning. And this involves the removal of sin, the continued removal of sin, and the growing in Christ-likeness. And so this is the opening statement to this letter, acknowledging the hardships, but also setting the perspective right for these people. And so it's with these realities in mind that this letter is written to encourage the various churches that now, decades after Jesus ascended to heaven, are trying to figure out how to hold to their faith as the culture around them is becoming increasingly hostile to it. And so you see those 
those provinces that are listed, this would essentially be a mail route that this letter was going to be distributed on. And so we, we see also in these opening verses that the source of hope and the reason for suffering are both rooted in the same thing. Let me say that again. The source of hope and the reason for suffering are rooted in the same thing. You know what that thing is? The salvation of Jesus. The salvation of Jesus brings both hope, but it also brings conflict. The the gospel of Jesus does two things in parallel for us. It exposes our sinful nature, which is not pleasant. And then it frees us from it. I'm reminded of the story of Zacchaeus, this tax collector, who always took more than he should have from the people. He was unjust. He was corrupt. And one day he hears this man named Jesus is coming through his town. And he says, I want to get a glimpse of this man. And it says Zacchaeus is a little shorter. And there's lots of people. So Zacchaeus climbs a tree so that he can get a view of this Jesus that so many people talk about. And as Jesus is walking through this crowd, of all the people that he could have pointed out, that he wanted to hang out with, he points to Zacchaeus. He says, hey, you're going to invite me over for dinner tonight. (laughs) I like to invite myself over for meals too. And so Zacchaeus, one of the most reviled men in the entire town, is now hosting Jesus. And in his encounter with Jesus, what does he see? He sees his sin clearly. And he repents from it. And and in his response to that repentance, he says, I am going to make things right. And so even just in the the story of Zacchaeus, we see what the gospel does. It, it, It brings conflict with those that need to be saved that don't think they do. It brings freedom from those that are lost in their sin, and then it sets us on a sanctifying journey to become more like Christ, and we see that in Zacchaeus. But here's the thing, that people who think they're righteous don't want to know that they aren't. People who think that they're righteous don't want to know that they are. Instead, they want to build their own moral systems based on the way that they are already living. What, what, what does that look like? Well, it looks like, man, if, if I think this, 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 and this fulfill me, then that is right, because that's what I want. And so people who think that they're righteous often don't want to know that they're, the way that they're living is not. Their God is themselves. And so when true righteousness, when the true righteousness and saving grace of Jesus is proclaimed, it's offensive. When Jesus said he was the light of life, it was both good news and bad news. For those that knew that they were in sin, knew that they were powerless to break that sin from themselves. They were lost. They didn't know who they were. They were depressed. They were anxious. Man, when Jesus spoke these words, they went, oh, this is good news. But for those who said, no, I have my life designed how I want it to be. I know what I want to be fulfilled. I know what what things need to be a part of my life. And if you say anything other than that, 
well, that's bad news. I disagree with you. And so this is what happened with Jesus as he began to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There, I am the standard of righteousness and morality. Then it was good news for those that, were, that knew where they were at, knew their need, and it was bad news for those that had built their own empire. I remember when I was younger, uh, I went to a, a party with a couple friends of mine, and it was a party. Okay, so I will need to, you can fill in the blanks of what happens at, at high school parties. And I remember I was one of the only uh, people there that wasn't choosing to drink certain beverages and smoke certain things. And it was really interesting to me at this particular party uh, how when I was in a, in a room where everybody was doing that, it made people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and I thought, why do you care? I'm just hanging out with you guys. That's why I'm here is just to hang out. And the entire time I was there, people were saying, man, just, just smoke this, just drink this, just do this thing. Why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? And in, the, in a moment, I, the light came on, and I went, oh, if, the only, if there's only one person not in sin, that person kind of sticks out, right? And, and, and it kind of makes other people maybe feel a little bit guilty for the fact that they're, they're not doing the same things. So the only way they could feel a little less guilty about the, the sinful behavior is to make sure that everybody else was doing it with them. And so that's what happens when Jesus comes into the room, when he comes into our hearts and our lives. All of a sudden, everything that is sinful and that it doesn't adhere to his righteousness is exposed. And it makes us uncomfortable. And the culture reacts to it. And suffering ensues for those that try to follow Jesus in his ways. So when times get tough, as we can see right from the opening of this letter, they are tough for this church. What often happens is our vision usually gets narrow. We can, we, we can only see what's happening right in front of us. Now, we don't know the precise timing that this letter was written. He didn't date it at the top. But we do know who was in charge when this letter was written. And that Roman rule was getting increasingly hostile toward the Christian movement. We know from history, from multiple historians, that in 64 AD, Rome burned. A huge portion of Rome burned. And the emperor Nero was actually blamed for Rome burning, his own city, at that time. There was a belief that he had started the fires himself because the places where the fires burned was this old architecture part of the city. And he really wanted to build more monuments to himself, more palaces that he liked, more coliseums. And so there was this belief from historians of that time that Nero himself started the fires. But pre-social media, word began to circulate that maybe it was him. And all of a sudden, Nero's like, uh-oh, I'm going to get found out. So he had to find somebody to take the fall. So it was pretty easy for Nero. He looked out in the city. He goes, well, who's the most unpopular group here? Christians. And so Nero blamed the Christians. And maybe you've, you've heard about this. What ensued was uh, the persecution of Christians in Rome, where some would literally be dipped in tar and lit on fire. Some would be dressed in animals' clothes and put in an in a arena for wild dogs to attack. So we don't know exactly the timing of this incident in relation to when Peter wrote this letter, but we know things weren't friendly and they were getting more unfriendly. Now, it is unlikely that this persecution, even if it had happened when Peter wrote this letter, 
would have reached the churches that Peter was writing to as they were outside of the city up north. But it's pretty likely that he at least had this in mind as he wrote the letter. So that's why, as we'll see in this portion of Scripture, having hope in the midst of suffering and hostility is a key theme. What is also likely is that many of these churches that this letter would be distributed to, uh, full of new Christians, were already experiencing varying degrees, at least of social hostility. Because when your morality changes, when your standard of righteousness changes, and it's different than the culture, you stick out. And so we can gather that at the very least, there was some social, some cultural hostility happening between those that were trying to follow Jesus. So it's common for all of us, when times get tough, um, for our vision to get very narrow. And this is where the words in uh, verses 3 and 5 serve to change the perspective. Right from the jump, Peter wants us to be grounded in one thing, the salvation of Jesus. And so he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I love that. And so Peter, what he's trying to do, he's trying to elevate the people's perspective. I had to do this this last week with my son, Trey, who's learning how to ride a bike with training wheels. And as he was riding, one of the wheels bent up, and he wiped out. And then he didn't want to touch the bike again. Trey, you're listening to this at home. I know you know what I'm talking about. And... And, I, and he said, I never want to ride this bike again. And I said, wait a second. That was one bad wipeout. And you've been doing really well for a week. And guess what? You probably will wipe out again. But you're going to wipe out less. Trust me, I've been there before. But when we are in the midst of suffering, that's all we can see is just that one very moment. And so Peter is saying, hey, remember this great God that you serve. I I love Isaiah 51. It says this, Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die like flies. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Amen. There's a a couple of amens there. That's good. A little deeper voice than the ones I heard earlier. So So what Peter's doing is he's he's saying, calling all exiles and outcasts, all, all the marginalized and the traumatized, what a wonderful God we have. His mercy was on full display for all of history. Jesus resurrected from the death. And so our lives are made new by faith in him and in his great power, he is keeping us close until we get to be with him fully, free, at peace. This is the living hope we have. 
And so when things aren't going well, we need to expand our vision and we need to remember who we belong to. This is our living hope. Now, when we say the word hope, many of us may get certain things in mind. Hope defined is this feeling of expectation to anticipate something good, usually with joy. Hope is invisible. It's the feeling we have when we're waiting for or expecting something good to happen. Hope sees the invisible, feels the intangible, and achieves the impossible. And for us, hope is a person. Jesus, the living hope that Peter is talking about in verse 3. And so our hope is both a current reality, we have hope now, and it's a future fulfillment, this expectancy we have that it's one day fully going to be realized. I was trying to think of a good illustration for that, and the only thing I could come up with, uh, probably because I'm seeing a lot of baby bumps, is pregnancy. We have, we've had several babies born in this last year, and we've got some more on the way this fall, and it's really exciting. And I remember when my wife, Jessica, was pregnant with our firstborn, and it was about month eight, maybe, maybe month nine, and I thought to myself, I think she's always been pregnant. Like, it just felt like that we've been waiting for a long time. I think she felt it even more than I did. Uh, and, and I thought, we were so excited about the arrival of our firstborn, but there was this kind of sense of like, man, is it really going to happen? When is it going to happen? And, and we had a name for him, and we sung to him, and we had a room set up for him. We had all of these hopes and these dreams of what it would be like. And when he finally arrived, it was the fulfillment of that hope. I remember holding him in my hands, this little bean, just thinking, wow, it was worth it. <laughs> it was worth the wait to meet this guy. And so what Peter is seeking to do is he's seeking to elevate the perspective of the churches. He's also, though, not pretending that suffering isn't real. No. This isn't a put on a happy face, there's more things, worse things to worry about. No, he acknowledges suffering in the midst of having this hope. In verse 6, he says, In all this, what we just read, you greatly rejoice. Wow, you are close to God. Though, now for a little while, you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You know, if we went around the room this morning, we could share story after story after story of grief, of having to deal with all sorts of issues and challenges. What Peter is saying, in other words, is despite the suffering, your center of gravity is the greatness of Jesus and your inheritance with him. But we can be real. Things are tough right now. I appreciate Caleb, even just this morning, saying, hey, it was a tough week. We can be real and acknowledge these things. Now, here's one of the things that, that we probably don't acknowledge enough or talk about enough in church, is that suffering is one of the key aspects of the Christian life. Suffering is one of the key aspects of the Christian life. When we have chosen to follow Jesus there is not just an insinuation, but there is actually a promise that we will also experience suffering as Jesus did. 
Just a few quotes that make us think about what suffering produces. Um, Helen Keller says, We could never learn to be brave and patient if there were only joy in the world. Now, this is a woman, if you don't know who Helen Keller was, that was 19 months had an illness that took away her sight and her hearing. We could never learn to be brave and patient if there were only joy in the world. C.S. Lewis, the ever-quotable C.S. Lewis, says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This is a man who lost his wife early. He knew, he knew what it meant to experience pain. Henry Nguyen uh, says, the first thing that Jesus promises is suffering. I tell you, you will be weeping and wailing and you will be sorrowful. He's quoting Jesus here. But he calls these pains birth pains. And so what seems a hindrance becomes a way, what seems an obstacle becomes a door, and what seems a misfit becomes a cornerstone. Jesus changes our history from a random series of sad incidents and accidents into a constant opportunity for a change of heart. So we know that suffering is part of life, and we experience it for a variety of reasons and in a variety of ways. But in this letter, there was one specific reason in mind. The people in these churches were suffering because they were trying to live out the ways of Jesus. And those ways were, in many ways, at odds with the culture and society that they found themselves in. Have you ever read a story or met somebody who's lived differently in the midst of a culture that was utterly sinful, completely broken? History is full of these people. I came across an, a short article about suffering and faith this last week by a name, man named Martin Luther King Jr. And in this article, as you know the story of Martin Luther King Jr., he reflects on what he's endured and why and what it's produced. And I just want to read a short portion of it to you this morning. He says, My personal trials have also taught me the value of unmerited suffering. Listen to that again. <laughs> My personal trials have also taught me the value of unmerited suffering. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways that I could respond to my situation. Either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. Recognizing the necessity for suffering, I have tried to make of it a virtue, if only to save myself from bitterness. I have attempted to see my personal ordeals as an opportunity to transform myself and heal the people involved in the tragic situation which now obtains. I have lived these last few years with the conviction that unearned suffering is redemptive. Now, there are some who still find the cross a stumbling block and others consider it foolishness, but I am more convinced than ever before that it is the power of God unto social and individual salvation. So, like the Apostle Paul, I can now humbly yet proudly say, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. 
the suffering and agonizing moments through which I have passed over the last few years have also drawn me closer to God. More than ever before, I am convinced of the reality of a personal God. Martin Luther King on suffering and faith written in 1960. So our first response to suffering is always based on our weakness. It, the, the question is, how can I make this stop? Uh, if you're noticing my voice sounds a little different this week, is because earlier in the week I was pretty sick. In fact, probably the worst sickness I've had in, since COVID. Uh, we had this cold sweep through our family. Most of my family, it was a day or two for me, it just laid me out for like three days. And the first moments, I'm like, what drugs can I take to overcome this? Day two, I was just kind of wallowing in misery. Day three, I, I started to do something that I think a lot of us do when something's taken away from us. I start to make all sorts of vows about what I'm going to do when I feel better. Right? Anybody, you're laughing because you can relate to this. I think it's time to start working out again. As soon as I'm healthy, I am going to start running, you know. Oh, that project I've been putting off, I, I can't do it now because I'm so sick. But as soon as I feel better... Right, we do that. We, we look at this, this temporary thing and, and we, it affects us in a certain way. And as Christians, however our re response is to suffering, what we're challenged to ask is, what is this going to produce? What is my suffering revealing about my character and who I am? And I love MLK's statement here. But he essentially is saying, what is God's plan in this? Did you catch, catch the connection that he made? He says, I have lived these last few years with the conviction that unearned suffering is redemptive. And he, he makes that connection with Jesus. Who Jesus is and what he accomplished. He talks about the author of redemption, Jesus who suffered for our sake through no fault or sin of his own, so that we can have a living hope. And so when we suffer for living out our faith, we are truly following in the footsteps of Jesus. And as MLK said, he felt drawn closer to God through his suffering. And we can know, we stand up and say, that's it. In fact, I think MLK is, he would if he were here today, as he were to read the next two verses, seven and eight, he would say, that's what I'm talking about. Peter goes on to say, after acknowledging suffering, he says, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, even though refined by fire, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's it. That's what suffering. It draws us closer to God. And this is where we need to be careful to tether uh, our idea of suffering to the context of this passage. The primary reason these believers are suffering is not for their political affiliation, not because they're walking down the street being jerks to people, but it's simply because they're trying to follow the ways of Jesus. It's this proclamation and application of our salvation in Jesus alone that is disruptive. And it's weird. And it's offensive to a culture that has their own ever-changing subjective righteousness. And this has always been the case for followers of Jesus, and it still is today. The most 
persecuted group of people on the earth today are Christians. This isn't debated. This isn't slanted. This is just a fact. To date, the most persecuted group of people on the earth are Christians. I was reading this last week in Nigeria. The first four months of the year, 1,400 Christians have been targeted and killed in Nigeria. I was reading you know, what's happening in, in the education system in China, and it's, it's due to roll out to the entire country, that the Chinese government, after not being able to contain the Christian church for decades, the fastest growing churches in the, in the world, they're saying, what do we do? I know what we'll do. We'll rewrite scripture. And so they've taken a passage of scripture, you know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. They've taken that passage of scripture and they've distorted it. And they, in that passage of scripture, Jesus kills the woman and admits that he's a sinner. No joke. So if we don't think that the ways of Jesus are controversial, we need to open up our eyes. They very much are. His salvation is offensive. I need to be saved from what? No. My righteousness is good enough for me. I can save myself. The way that I live, the things that I do, they will fulfill me. Trust me, they will eventually. Meanwhile, they don't. And I'm afraid that the American church has become so risk-averse that we will do whatever we can, not only to make sure that we don't suffer, but to make sure that, that we're not even uncomfortable. It's easy to come to church with a bunch of other churchy people and raise your hands and say amen. But what about tomorrow? What about in the culture? What about the things that your, your kids are interacting with at school? What does our Christian faith look like? So on one hand, I've seen Christians that are afraid to deal with biblical issues of justice like Martin Luther King did. And so some will try and justify not engaging with issues of injustice by saying, oh, we just need to preach the gospel. And, and things will eventually work out. Just denying the power of the gospel itself and its application to our lives. And then the, on the other hand, we're so afraid, many people, to, to stick with God's standard of righteousness that as the culture shifts, we just shift with it because we don't want to stick out. We don't want to be that, that kid at the party not doing all the things that everybody else is doing. So we just shift right along with it, and we play the, the, the shifting sand uh, cultural morality game. Wait, whatever is popular, that's what I'll go with. We just make stuff up as we go along. The culture's doing that right now, and it's destructive. Being afraid to hold fast to the unchanging truth of God. And so this might be a good spot for us to pause and consider how true this is for us personally. We're not enduring real persecution. But are we afraid to be uncomfortable? Are we, scared to are we scared to stick out for being followers of Jesus? Are, are we worried that pursuing the holiness of Jesus might make us the odd one out on our committees at work? In our Zoom calls? In our social clubs? I think the bigger question is, do I really understand what Jesus has saved me from? To understand the amazing gift 
of the salvation of Jesus and what he's offering me, this living hope to, to, to be wrapped up in as I journey through this life. My hope is for our church that this next statement in Peter's letter is true for all of us. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end results of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Can we get a little bit of an amen, a bit more of an amen for that? May this be... Thank you, Christina. May this be true for us. May this, these words be true for us. As long as you have breath in your lungs, the story of your life is still being written. Our belonging to and following the ways of Jesus doesn't mean we still won't sin, but it means we'll be forgiven. It doesn't mean we still won't suffer, but it means that we won't be alone in our suffering. And following Jesus doesn't mean that all of our wildest dreams are going to be, come true in this life. But it does mean that we have a living hope pointing us to something far better. And so today is not just another Sunday. Today is the day to renew our hope in the life-changing salvation that Jesus offers our lives. Amen? I'm going to have the worship team come up. And I just want us to take a moment to reflect on this. I want, us to, I want you to consider what the salvation of Jesus means for your life. If you're in a period of suffering, if, you've, if you're uncomfortable because of your faith, lift up your eyes and, and take hope. If you are complacent and asleep in your faith, the sum total of it is Sunday, look up your, lift up your eyes and wake up. Jesus has something far better for you. For all far better for us to be a light in this world that desperately needs to know the salvation of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I first want to pray for those that have not received this living hope. They, they, they think that as the culture shifts and that they'll find it in the next thing. Or as the years go by, they'll find it in the next phase of life. But they still haven't found what they're looking for. And so, Lord, I pray that they would find it this morning. They would find it in you. That you are the living hope. That you lived and you died for them. You gave them redemption that they couldn't earn themselves. And if that's you this morning, it is time just to say, yes, I believe. I receive. Make Jesus the ruler, the king of your life. Come under his authority and his love. Grab onto his hope. And know that he will never leave you or forsake you once you do. And Lord, for our church, those that have, have trusted in you, would you wake us up, Father? Uh, you're not calling us to be jerks or to, to run into work tomorrow and start throwing Bibles at people. But may we not be afraid to hold fast to the hope that we have. May we not be influenced by the shifting sands of culture, but know that you are the way, the truth, and the life. May you, like you did for Martin Luther King, uh, give us wisdom to know how to bring redemptive truths into the situations and seasons that we find ourselves in.
Father, whether it's school boards, committees at work, may we be able to, to season those things with the salt of your gospel, to be ambassadors of light and love and justice, Lord, wherever you have us. So would you stand with me this morning? I just want to pray one last prayer over all of us. Would you stand up where you, wherever you are? Both at home and here. And I just want to commission you. On Pentecost Sunday, when the Holy Spirit came, the people went out and they began to, to demonstrate the life-changing grace of Jesus. And so I want to pray that for you this morning. Jesus, in your name, by your Spirit, Lord, would you fall on each person in this room? Would you commission them to be your ambassadors to a world that is in darkness, that is in brokenness, that is in confusion, Lord? And Father, would you give them the wisdom and the power of your Spirit to be light and life, to point to the salvation of Jesus? And Lord, would you deepen the reality of that for them? Would you lift their eyes this morning to know a great and mighty and merciful God you are? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.